if I put in the same reps that anybody else who has achieved something has put in, then I believe I can achieve it. So I think I just look at it like success is not biased to who takes the actions. You can be insecure and inexperienced. If you take the actions of somebody who is not, you can still have that thing. How do you create an unshakable business? I crossed $100 million in net worth by the age of 28. Now I'm growing acquisition.com into a billion dollar portfolio. In this podcast, I share the lessons I've learned in scaling big businesses and helping our portfolio companies do the same. Buckle up and let's build. You're such a freaking badass, but in going back into your story, you were 85 pounds overweight, you were arrested six times, you were in drugs, alcohol, you barely had any friends, and now, homie, you sit here, a freaking badass, that is in a beautiful relationship, that's so damn confident, and have a company that's earning revenue, $100 million, I believe. What the hell were you able to do to your habits in order so that you can freaking show up now? And what are the habits you've actually had to ditch in order to be a freaking badass and go after that dream of yours? I'll tell you something that I tell people when they always come to me and they're trying to lose weight, which is, they say like, Layla, it just can't be consistent. And I'm like, that's not true because you do consistently overeat, <laughs> right? And so I think that rings so true to me because there were a lot of things that I did consistently that got me those results. And I had to then consistently do other things to get the results that I get now. But I think that for a very long period of time when I was making that change, a lot of people say like, did you use positive visualization? And like, you're really like, bringing all these like great feelings into... And I didn't have any of that. What I was able to channel or tap into was all these negative feelings that I had. And I was able to then say like, I'm angry and I'm anxious and I have all this like angst inside of me. And instead of putting it into all of these things, I'm going to put it into things that are going to make my life better. The day after the sixth time I was arrested, my dad, they brought me to my parents' house because whatever, they didn't know where my house was. And I think that was what was on my license at the time. And I woke up and I, you know, the immediate feeling of like absolute dread, right? Just like panic. And I was like, oh my God, I don't remember what happened last night. What happened? And then I like look to the nightstand and then there's like the arrest record. And I was like, I just remember like the, the worst anxiety I've ever had, like settling in, just feeling ashamed, just feeling honestly disgusted with myself. And I had to walk downstairs and my dad was sitting on the couch and I sat down because I, I'm in his house. He obviously had to deal with whatever happened last night. Mm. I'm not gonna be disrespectful and just like leave. And I sat down waiting, just like thinking he, like, this is when he's going to let me have it, right? Like, he's just going to like rip into me. And instead, I just remember he sat down, he looked at me and he almost had like tears in his eyes. And he was like, you can do whatever you want. I can't control you. You don't even live in this house anymore. It's like, but I just want to tell you that I do think that if you keep doing what you're doing, you're going to kill yourself. And I just felt so guilty because my dad He's such a good person. Like, he's just like the best person I know. And he's always been there for me. He's always encouraged me. He's always been a cheerleader for me when there was no evidence or reason to be. And I just felt horrible that I, like, whether it was, you know, I think it then equated to like feeling horrible about myself, but I felt horrible that I did that to him. And in that moment, I went upstairs and then I got my stuff and I went home to my apartment and I just decided, I was like, I'm not 
It, it wasn't like, what are you going to stop doing? It was, you are now a different person. Who you are today is no longer who you are tomorrow. You don't do anything like what Layla has been doing. Layla, who's getting arrested and drinking and hanging out with these people, no longer, that's not who you are. You are a new person. And I just remember saying that to myself. I was like, I have a new identity and I am now a new person. So what does this new person do? She goes to the gym every day. She doesn't eat like shit and overeat. She doesn't hang out with people who aren't going anywhere in life. She has a vision for her life. She reads. She doesn't like binge Netflix and go, you know, watch movies till 3 a.m. You know, she lives on her own and isn't surrounded by people who are doing things that aren't productive for their lives. She gets good grades, even though maybe the college isn't what she wants to do. It's because it's a representation of hard work. And she works a lot and works really hard. And so it wasn't even like mechanically, how do I change all these habits, which I think I would probably talk more to now. In that moment, it was so much emotion of just feeling so fed up with myself that I said, I'm assuming a new identity. And this new identity, it's easy to evaluate what she does and doesn't do. And those habits just happen to come with it. So how do you, in those moments then, move towards the positive though? Because you can have taken that moment, right, where you felt, I assume, shame and guilt around your dad that you had been arrested again and that he is now tearful and maybe losing his daughter. In that moment, before you even decided that you were going to be a new person, many, many people will retreat. Many people will just take on that shame and that guilt and then drink more to actually numb that pain or eat more to numb that pain. But you chose not to. Mm -hmm. What do you think that thing was that made that first decision? Because I think it is a decision, right? That first decision to just say no more. Because I've heard you talk about your emotions and how much that negative voice can really talk to you about that you're no good, but you chose not to listen to it. Mm -hmm. And I was watching one of your videos and in that you were saying about, you have to ask yourself about your emotion. Is this actually true? Yeah. I think what it was, was realizing that in that moment, everything that people did say about me, everything my dad was saying, everything that people had said to me up to that point about what I was doing in my life was true. And that was what was horrifying, is that I agreed with my dad. I was like, if you look at this, like evidence, if I keep going down this path, it would make sense that you think that I would die. I'm over drinking all the time. I'm mixing drugs and alcohol. I'm literally like blacking out, not remembering where I am. I mean, like there's so many things that could happen. And I'm doing it frequently. And I think that it was, it was the horror of, I think when you're young, you always think, it's not going to happen to me. It's going to happen to that person right there. And I think they call it like the soldier syndrome, which is like you ask soldiers that go to war, do you think that you could die? And they say, oh, I don't think I could die, but I'm really worried about my friend Tim who's coming with me. And I think it goes the same with everything in life. And it was in that moment that that reality or the not reality that I was living in, that I was still invincible in some weird way mm. and that the laws of nature wouldn't apply to me, it was shattered in that instant. And I realized that I actually could kill myself by doing that. And I think the fear of, wow, I'm not invincible. And if I don't actually take action, it's only going to continue to get worse. And I really thought about it and thought to myself, like, if I continue to do these things, I just continue to feel worse and worse about myself. And then the anxiety builds and then you get into the circle of like, I drink more, I feel more anxious to then not feel anxious. I have to drink more because I'm even more anxious. And it just spirals up. And... I realized that there is no better time than now to break that cycle. And I think when I felt like I was faced with 
honestly, my life, I was like, I don't want to fuck around anymore. Like you've done this long enough. I just felt completely fed up with myself. And mostly because I realized that everything people said was correct. And I think that a lot of us, when we're in this like really dark spot, we push away the things people say that are bad about us. You know, we were just talking before we got in on here about comments, right? Something Alex and I have talked about is like the comments that hurt us the most when people say them are the ones that we know are true. And I think that people were saying so many things to me. Oh, you're gaining weight. Oh, you're not doing this. Oh, you're just going to end up drinking all the time. You're going to end up like your mom. You're So many things. And I would push them out. Like, that's not true. That's not true. But then if you look at the evidence, I was like, this is true. And in that moment when he said it and I agreed with him, I was like, they're all right. And I don't want to keep doing that. Because I knew, I was like, are you going to be happy with this five years from now if you keep doing this? I was like, what, what am I going to be? Like right now, I think at the time I was 220 pounds. I was like, what am I going to be 400 pounds? Like, where do you draw the line? And I was like, I'm drawing it right now. Because that is terrifying to me. The future of if I continue to go down this road, if I gain twice the weight, if I get arrested twice the times, if I have twice the bad friends, like what my life looks like, it was unacceptable to me. And I think that that was really what motivated the change was just the fear of what my future would look like if I didn't make it now. Dude, that's so freaking strong because I think a lot of things that I said in this type of space of like motivation and inspiration is like, what do you want to be? Who do you want to be? And like work towards it. Now, look, there is something very true to it. So I actually don't want to dismiss it. But there's this other side that can be just as powerful. And, you know, you even said it wasn't like I was saying I want to fit into a beautiful bikini and go on stage and pose, right? Which is what you end up doing and like, like crushing it, by the way, you looked amazing. But to go on that wasn't your motivator. And I think that sometimes if you have a motivator of, I want to get into a bikini, then something happens, an emotion hits, you feel bad, you're something, and then it becomes a derail. Yeah. It's something strong to the fear. But how did you not let it cripple you or hold you back? Because sometimes like the fear of being 400 or 500 pounds sometimes can be quite a toxic feeling inside. So how did you actually use that as a beautiful inspiration? I didn't expect to feel good. And I think that a lot of people ask me, how do you lose weight? How do you stay in shape? How do you keep building business? How do you keep going? How do you keep striving for more? And I think I just never expect it to feel good. And I think that I've learned that damn near everything in life that has been really, really freaking good for me has felt pretty awful at the time and has felt terrifying. And I've been incredibly anxious, but I'm either going to be anxious because I'm hiding from something or I'm going to be anxious because I'm striving for something. Only one of them moves me forward. So it's like, you don't get rid of anxiety. That's just part of life. But it feels, you can at least create a positive association with it if it moves you forward. And so I looked at it in that way, which is like, I'm going to feel like shit no matter what. I feel like shit now. I feel like shit changing. At least one of them moves me toward a life that maybe one day doesn't feel so bad. And so I think it was actually not trying to avoid bad feelings. Of course, you feel terrified trying to change. Of course, it feels overwhelming. Look at what you've been doing. And I think that actually a lot of the reason that it's so hard to change is that people tell us that we need to do something about the feelings before we change. Mm -hmm. But it's like, what if I could change while feeling that way? And in that, I find relief because I don't have to feel great before I step on stage. I don't have to feel sure of myself before I go on a diet. I don't have to feel less than overwhelmed before I do a new business venture. I can feel all those things and still do them. And I find so much relief in that because it has led to me not having to try and control my emotions. It's like, I can't control my emotions. I can control my behavior. And ironically, the more that I just focus on my behavior, my emotions tend to follow. 
Oh, that's so freaking strong. I've actually heard you've got some little notes here on like the steps on how on earth you make sure that you don't give into your emotions. And I'd love to go through them. And I believe that you used it as a frame of reference of like getting on stage. But I think that this applies to anybody because to your point, if your emotions are telling you like, hey, like slow down or don't do that. That's going to, you're going to get really upset or someone's going to upset you or someone's going to push you around or someone's going to, you know, emotionally abuse you. Like it just, most people will retreat and you've got a bit of a formula that I love. So if you don't mind taking us through it. So you say that number one, you ask, is it true? Number two, how then does it make you feel? And then number three, live life like as if you believe the thought was real. I think, so the reason I like this framework is because I think that there's a lot of, and this is just my opinion. This is what has worked for me. I tend to overanalyze, overthink, get caught up in my head. And so for me, I tend to place, used to place an over more importance on my thoughts and feelings than I think was healthy. And so for me, what it was is that I was basically treating certain thoughts and feelings like they were overly important. And because of that, I was getting really caught up in them and caught up in these stories that my brain was creating that weren't true. And so for me, whenever I feel really emotional about something, and it's usually fear, right? Fear of something, anticipation of something that could happen. That's usually where I go. I ask myself, well, is this true? How do you know it's true? And what that follows is basically, do you have any evidence for this thought, right? And then I ask myself, okay, well, is there evidence for the opposite of that? Is there evidence that it's not true? And I'll write it down on a list. And I literally do this when I'm really trying to work through something. And then I keep that list of all the reasons that thought is not true or that thing that I'm fearful of is not true. And what I'm trying to do is like our brain when it's scared, you know, and I have literally, I'm not like some of the people that's been on your show. This is just what I have found. I feel like when my brain is freaking out, it tries to find all these things that could be a threat, right? It looks at things that wouldn't be a threat and it finds them a threat. This is the reason why you should speak on stage. You see right here. And it's like, ah, and it's like turning everything into something as a reason why I shouldn't do this thing. And so I try to ground myself in like, I create this list and I'm like, here's all the reasons why your brain is wrong. And I read the list over and over and over again to convince myself to stick with whatever it is, right? When I get really scared. And I think that then asking myself the follow-up question of what would someone who's not scared do? That reminds me that if I take action like somebody who is not fearful, eventually the fear will fade. You know, it's like, I'm scared of heights. (laughs) I went skydiving purposely to get over the fear of height. Uh, I said, I'm not going to tell anybody. I didn't tell anyone that I went with that I was scared of heights at the time. I didn't like say it. I wasn't talking. I was like, I will go because I don't want that to stop me. And I blacked out because I was so terrified. <laughs> but the funny thing in was the that- air? In the air, oh, yeah. <laughs> and then when I like came out of the blackout, I was, the parachute had been pulled and like I was, you know, in the air. And then it was really cool, right? But- Up until that point, I kept saying to myself, what would someone do who wasn't scared of heights? They would go and do the skydiving, right? And then what that allowed is that after I did it, I had evidence of why this thing is not scary. And then what that gave me is like, the next time someone asks me, I don't feel a sense of anxiety. And so it's like, that helps me take the first step is just asking myself, what would someone do who was not scared of this thing? If I do that action enough, the emotion will fade. Mm. And I love that there's power in that. There's relief in it because I'm like, I know, and I don't expect myself to not be scared. I don't expect myself to not feel like I want to freak out. I don't expect myself to not get overwhelmed, maybe not even cry, right? But I do expect myself to follow through because I can control that. I can't control how I feel. 
But I do know, because time and time again, it's proven it to myself, that if I do it one time, it is 50 times easier the second time. I love that. Okay, so I'm in Layla's head and you're getting on the plane and you're like, okay, oh shit, oh shit, oh shit. I'm not going to tell anyone, oh shit, oh shit, oh shit. Yeah. Some people, and again, I love breaking down people's stories and then go, yeah. what's the moment where most people stop, but then that person that is freaking successful doesn't stop. Yeah. So people may go, okay, I get it. I'm going to go, you know, if you're fear heights, get on the plane. The moment though, that they're like, cool, open up the door. Yeah. That's when the heart starts. All the thoughts come flooding in yeah. that sometimes overtake all the work, right? The repetitive, the mindset stuff of that you've like really worked on. Maybe you've, like you said, you repeated all the things that, yeah. you know, you were going to do or that your mind was trying to trick you into believing. Mm -hmm. But in that moment where the door opens and the reality freaking hits, what is happening in your head? Nothing. Literally just fear, fear. So how the hell don't you then go, I just I'm not going to do it. So I'll give you another example. I go to talk on stage. Caleb knows this. It's like I hadn't spoken on stage in years and it was like my first talk. And behind stage, what nobody knows as they're all talking to me, it's like my heart is like at 190, right? I'm like freaking the fuck out. I literally cannot, like no spit, nothing. And I'm about to go up in front of like 2,000 people. And as I walk on stage, I'm like, I think I might be having a panic attack. And I just, all I think to myself is like, move, move, keep moving, keep moving. Just keep talking, just keep moving. Just keep acting. Just keep doing the thing. And what you find is that whether you coax yourself or don't coax yourself, emotions go away eventually. Mm. Like literally it's like focus on what your body is doing, not on what your brain's doing. Mm. And then within, like when I was on stage this time, for example, within two minutes, I felt completely normal. And I was like, oh my God. I didn't actually have a full-blown planning attack. Like I thought I was going to. I like could barely breathe when I was talking. And the crazy thing is I watched that speech now and you can't even tell. You can't tell. You can't tell. Because I just kept thinking like, just act. Like it's like, it almost feels like I'm just pretending. Same with the plane. It's like, just act like the person that's going to jump off this plane. And then like it happens. Again, this is just what's worked for me. But it's like, I find so much relief knowing that I don't have to think a certain way to make it happen. I just can move through it and eventually my mind will catch up and realize this is not so bad. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really what is happening. If I had to guess, it's like my mind eventually realizes like this is not so terrifying. This is not a threat. You're not running from the situation because when you physically walk towards that situation, what am I signaling to my brain? I'm signaling this is okay. Mm -hmm. We can keep doing this. You don't need to run away from it. Mm -hmm. And I think that you just have to, be able to do it once to see that it works. I think there's, there's a quote that I heard that meant a lot to me, which was fear is a mile wide and an inch deep. If you just take the first step, you're like, it's a fucking puddle. I can just skip through it. But I think most people think it's like, you know, the Bermuda Triangle. Do you ever, do <laughs> do you ever play like, what's the worst that can happen? Yes. Does that serve you? You find that that works for you? I do find that works for me actually really well. Going to like, what is the absolute worst case? And then how am I going to deal with it? Mm if it actually happens. Now I will say, going into the like skydiving, I don't know if I'd go skydiving again today, only because I don't know if I would want, like there's a chance that you could just, you know, parachute wouldn't pull and like you could die. So I'm like, I don't know if I want that risk, not out of fear, but out of risk. Mm. But I do think through what is the worst that could happen and how would I deal with that? Like let's not when it happens, but then like, okay, what's the morning after it happened look like? 
How will you deal with the press? How will you deal with your spouse? How will you deal with your friends and family? Like whatever the thing is. Mm-hmm. How will you deal with looking like an idiot on stage? And I, then I think to myself, like, it's usually not as bad as we think. Mm-hmm. Talk to me about how then you actively stopped the self-sabotage. So when it comes to drinking, when it came to drugs, when it came to partying and going out late and getting arrested and all of that stuff, I assume that there are habits in that, right? And so you even said, you know, moving towards or hearing the fear of what could happen, but how do you actually change, right? Because I love the idea of going, I'm no longer this person. Like Mm -hmm. I freaking love that. That's so damn powerful. But then you wake up the next day and the feeling of maybe the shame or the guilt from your dad has dissipated a bit. And then you wake up the next day and it's dissipated more. By the end of the weekend, most people go back to drinking and partying and then yeah. getting in trouble again because they haven't changed their behavior. Mm-hmm. And the voice in your head can then trick you into doing things. Oh, it's fine. Oh, it's just... A- so how did you actively, step by step, like on a daily basis, what did you do? Or did you just freaking cut and stop completely like cold turkey? I did in many ways. Because I think that I did one thing really well, which is I put myself, I was in an environment where it was acceptable to do what I was doing. Mm. And I took myself out of that environment and put myself in a new one where that was not acceptable. I found friends who would find that behavior unacceptable. You know, I lived in a place where that would be unacceptable. And so I moved. I lived in a house with six people. I moved out on my own. I then committed to having a job which meant that I had responsibility, which made a lot of the things I did not acceptable because I wouldn't be able to have that job if I did those things. And then I got new friends who, if I was to act that way, they would not be my friend. I am all for all the things I do internally. But gosh, if we can help change by changing our environment, why would we not do it? Mm-hmm. You know, even, I mean, another example I've done that later in my life is like I sold my last company, Gym Launch, moved immediately. I was like, I don't want to be Gym Launch Layla anymore. I want to be a different Layla. And so I don't really want to do that in this house. Moved. And I remember that was the first time that I felt the power of my environment though, because I realized those voices in your head come up, right? And we get them all the time. But if your environment reinforces those voices and makes them louder, it is very hard to resist them. And I think that being able to engineer your environment is truly a skill. And I think that you've mastered it. I mean, like, look how, look how you've built your life. And I think that I am so much more intentional with it now. Make it so that your environment makes it easy to achieve your goals and hard not to comply with them. Like, really? Because if, if all of a sudden none of your friends drink and they would find it, you know, say repulsive if you got drunk, would you drink? We have so much, like, other people have so much power over us, people that are close to us. But I think in many ways, we can take advantage of that when we're trying to change. You know, even Alex and I, when one of us is trying to make a change, we tell the other person so that they can reinforce the behaviors we want and try to help us extinguish the ones we don't want. And I find it so powerful that we help each other with that because it it helps it go so much faster than if we're trying to do it on our own. It's sort of like, you know, when I used to be a personal trainer and I was trying to help other people lose weight, every time they did any kind of behavior that it was a leading indicator of losing weight. I would clap for them, congratulate, you're amazing, send them gifts, you know, like anything I could do to make them feel good and then attach positive associations with those new behaviors. And I think that a big hack for doing that and without, you know, you don't even need to form anyway, though, is just get around people where that's just what's acceptable. 
And that was really what I did, I think, in many ways is, and I'm immediately after I moved out of that apartment into my own, then I moved to California and got a whole new group of friends. Everyone's into fitness. Everyone's into learning business, trying to figure out how to make money, trying to figure out how to better themselves. And that's who I surrounded myself with. And the things that Layla, who got arrested six times did, would not have been acceptable to those people. So powerful. Did you also do anything on the negative side? So while you're like cheering yourself on or cheering other people on when they did something amazing, did you do anything on the opposite side? I don't like to use the word punishment, but a negative act or anything? I think until very recently, I beat myself up so much. If I didn't do what I wanted to do, that that was enough for me. Mm. You know what I mean? I don't think that I've done it so much for other people. I tend to look at it like rather than there should be consequences for certain behaviors. But I think that oftentimes what you want is somebody to do something else. And often if they feel bad, like too bad, then it's harder for them to do that other thing. And so I try to provide an alternative. You did this thing. Next time in that situation, this is the thing I would like you to do instead. So that was what I would try to do with clients when maybe they wouldn't adhere to something. It's like, rather than like beating them up, I know they're beating themselves up. So what I would rather do is provide them with like, take these steps next time that happens rather than the ones that you just took. And then figure out, is there a skill gap? Do you not know how to do that? Do you not know how to say no to food? Do you not know how to, you know, I had one client that like her husband, every time he went to McDonald's, he would get her food and she like couldn't say no because he brought her home food. And we realized it was actually like, she didn't know how to say no was the issue. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes within that, you find that when you give someone directions, there's a skill gap and that's why they can't follow them. So I look at it as how am I going to help this person change their behavior rather than how do I want to make them feel bad? Now, there are instances where I think feeling bad can equate to changing your behavior, like when we do it to ourselves mostly, but that comes from a place of autonomy. I think when other people do it to us, we tend to be not react as well. So when you're doing it to yourself, it's yeah. just the basically incidental negative voice in your head? Yeah. I think for a long time, I was so scared of going back to that person that I was that any action I took that was like any step even sideways in that direction, I would just feel really poorly about myself. And it took a lot of time for me to undo that. Because I think that that was how I stayed on a path so strictly for so long. Because I think I was so terrified of going back to that reality, you know, Mm. like of ever feeling that way again, of ever being so like having such low confidence, being so dissatisfied with my life, having such few like real friends. Like it was just, I look back now and I think like, gosh, I would never want to go back there. But I think I was so scared of it for a period of time after, like when it was too recent that I just beat myself up if I didn't consistently move forward away from that. And your confidence building were those steps were in moving out of that house, it gave you a bit more confidence in moving and finding friends that were more like how you wanted to be gave you more confidence. Like what were the steps in order for you to build the confidence? Because that's one thing my audience really like, they want to make a change and they have a dream and they know where they want to go. But they, that first step or that continuous step, even if you make that first step, it's the confidence. It's always the thing that holds people back. So how did you build your confidence through this transition? I think that most of my confidence just came from sticking with the commitments that I made to myself. Like the things that I told myself I was going to do in private that maybe nobody even knew about, being able to stick with those things. And that came from training myself 
to take action despite how I felt. So I know that when shit hits the fan or shit's really hard, I've got my back. And I didn't used to. And I think I had lost a lot of trust with myself because I actually think that when I think of confidence, I almost think of trusting myself. Mm. That makes me feel confident to know that I can trust myself to do something hard or to do something that is hard in the moment, but best for me in the long term. And I think that that confidence came from training myself on how to keep those promises and how to stick with the commitments. And that just took time. It takes repetition. It didn't take months. It took years, you know, because think about how many years I wasn't going in that direction. And so I had to undo that and create new memories that I had within the context of my relationship with myself. And I think it still took, I think, a lot of time because I think what often happens, right, is that you're so far in one direction and then you go so far in the other direction. And I think that many times along that path, many people would have looked at me and not understood why I wouldn't have been so confident yet. And I think that that's just because I would keep the promises to myself, but I still had this feeling like I was never good enough. Like I was never, I could always be better, right? Which I think is good because it keeps you striving. But I think I wasn't able to mitigate the downside of that, which is like, like, you do pretty well, right? Like it was like being a friend to myself. And I think what I've had to learn to be able to actualize the confidence that I have earned is how to be a friend to myself and almost be like, look at the things that you have done. Because I think I've always been really cognizant of like, I've never wanted to have, I have an aversion to people who have like huge egos, right? I've never wanted to be that person. And so it's like, I never, I probably err towards like insecure versus confident. But now I think I've landed in a place where it's like a very good middle ground where I feel like I am confident. I don't have an inflated ego. You can take the actions, you can keep the promises to yourself, but then what are the stories that you tell yourself about why you kept those promises? I think that for a while, I looked at other people and said, you're all the reasons why that I've been able to achieve these things. And I took literally zero credit for anything. And I did that for a really long time in my life. And then I realized it's not like it's all of you are the reason. It's not that I am the reason. It's that we together are the reason. It's helped me balance insecurity and ego. I think sometimes the ego serves us. I actually think the ego yeah. is there to protect us, right? It's yeah. like going on stage. It's like, if you're scared, it's like the ego is like, what are you doing? What are you doing? Because it wants right. to protect you from getting embarrassed, freezing, right? So I kind of have a newfound relationship with my ego yeah. because I kind of like now treat it as my friend, like my homie. Like it is just there to like support me. And when I say support, it's almost to like warn me with the red flags that maybe I don't see. Right. I don't listen to it. I just look at the red flags. So observe. I, yeah, almost yeah. observe the ego and say, what is it showing you? And or ego or negative voice, whichever one. And it's like, what is it trying to say? Maybe it's true. Maybe you are about to go on stage and fall on your face, Lisa. Right. Okay. You didn't practice. Right. Yeah. What are you going to do? Exactly. Yeah. And it then became my homie that's now allowing me to come up with a game plan so that when I go on stage, I have ideas. So if I freeze, I've got a backup plan. And the backup yeah. plan was laugh, by the way. That was my <laughs> backup plan. Just laugh. And to your point, once you're able to say, okay, it's not an inflated ego. It's almost like I think inflated ego is the blindness to your skill sets. Mm-hmm. But I think most people that I know suffer from the opposite where they don't even have the confidence to be able to say, I can do this. So you actually said earlier where you didn't believe you were good enough. Do you believe you're good enough now? I believe I can do the thing. If I put in the same reps that anybody else who's achieved something has put in, 
then I believe I can achieve it. So I think I just look at it like success is not biased to who takes the actions. You can be insecure and inexperienced. If you take the actions of somebody who is not, you can still have that thing. And I think that's where I find a lot of my confidence is, I mean, I used to say this all the time, but I was like, you just outwork your self-doubt. I look at what somebody who is successful in something does. I do that amount and then more. And I feel extra certain. (laughs) (laughs) Guys. Yeah, I'm not perfect. I still have so many areas that I'm, I think it's funny because it's like, I'm secure in areas that I used to be insecure in, right? But then it's like you expose new areas if you're trying new things. And I think now I have a different relationship with insecurity, which is it's probably just pointing to an area that I have less experience with. Of course, I feel insecure if I've never built a private equity firm before. I've never built a private equity firm. But I do have a lot of experiences where I've done things before where I didn't have experience. So I do have more of an ability to to look at the transfer of skill of like, look at the five other times where you have had no experience in something and you've been able to do it anyways. Mm. So that gives me a sense of comfort, but I can still feel kind of insecure. I just don't look at it like a bad thing. And I also don't let it deter my sense of self-confidence. I can have confidence in the fact that I can achieve things I haven't done. I can feel insecure in the fact that it's a new environment. It's a new condition. And there's a lot of unknowns that I'm just not aware of. Does that make sense? Yeah. God, I love that idea of I can absolutely be insecure and confident all at the same time. I can be confident I'm still going to move forward no matter how insecure I am. Yeah. It's like, I really just don't feel like they're, they're, they both coexist. Yeah. Okay. So as you start to evolve, as you start to really develop your confidence, you start to build yourself, you start to move away. Like I love all those building blocks that you do. Many people and myself included, if you meet the wrong partner, it can absolutely end up derailing the person that you've built yourself up to be. And the amount of my audience that have built their confidence and then found a relationship that was really toxic that actually then destroyed their confidence. And now they actually almost don't know how to get it back. When you started on the dating game, did you worry about that? And were you thinking about your confidence and the type of person you would end up with? Yes. I wasn't thinking about, I wouldn't say my confidence as much as wanting to be with somebody who made me better. That was really what I was focused on. I think I was focused on, I want to find somebody who amplifies who I am, who doesn't suppress who I am. That was super important to me. And I think that I had been in many relationships where the men that I had dated, I had many good relationships. I also had a few that the people that I dated never wanted me to shine any brighter than I did that day one, right? And I think that that was like a a thing that made them feel more secure. But I just don't fuck with that. <laughs> like, I'm like, no. What did that look like if you don't mind yeah, going yeah. a little deeper? Very controlling. So. I'd be with friends and, you know, maybe not text them back for 30 minutes and then they'd show up. And then I'm like, yeah, this is weird. But I think I was also younger and I was probably very caught up in the emotions of the relationship. And I think I was probably more focused on the emotions that I felt, the like caught up in like lust and love rather than, is this the right partner for me? Are they making me better? Is this somebody I could build a really epic life with? Like, I wasn't asking myself the right questions. Do you love them? Yes. You know, love is, in my opinion, not enough. So I had, you know, dated a few people prior to Alex whom expressed that they wanted me to talk less. They actually said that to you? Yeah. 
class. Yeah. If you could just talk less, that would be great. Is this considered an actual boyfriend or like someone that you're kind of dating? Three months dating the person and they say that. Yeah. So I've had multiple instances of that, which I think lots of transactional relationships where that is what somebody is willing to do to be with that person. But that's just not me. Mm. So I just wanted to feel empowered. What did you say in that moment when he said that to you? I said, I don't think this is the right relationship for oh, me. Oh, so that was like the break in point. Oh, yeah. I don't, I don't, I've never had a problem walking away. I think, I think I was very lucky to have a father who treated me very well and who I saw treat women very well and also not let women walk on him. Like, I think it could go either way, right? Like, we can all suppress partners. And so I think I just realized as soon as I emotionally matured and realized that like love and lust are not what build a a great relationship, then I realized what I really wanted. And I was like, I want a partner, a life partner. I don't want like just a husband. I want a partner. And I want somebody who makes me better and who I can make better. You know, it wasn't a one-way street. I think it's it's a two-way street and you can't wish for somebody to make you better because if you're not the kind of person who can make them better, you're not going to get that person. And if you're not looking to make yourself better at the same time, and you're right. just leaning on your partner, that ends up being a disaster as 100%. well. 100%. Yeah. So as you started today, I heard you even say like, you just, you're like, it's a numbers game. <laughs> yeah. So this is before you met Alex. Um, yeah. If you don't mind taking me through that oh, the yeah. idea, because I love the notion, because it's always like, you even said it earlier, right? Love isn't enough. So how do you know when they're actually the right person? Because a lot of people, myself included, when I was a teenager, I confused love and lust and yep. attraction and also insecurity. So I was so insecure because no guy liked me because I was always picked on and bullied and for my looks that finally when I found a guy, it was like I put so much value in that and he would tell me, I love you. And he would say all the things, but it was definitely a lot of internal manipulation. Mm. So how did you then, when you started to go out and really figure out who's the person that's right for me, did you put like a list of things together of what you exactly were looking for? Yeah. So I'll tell you exactly what I did, which was I read, it was one of Tony Robbins books. It was like Unleash the Power, something. And they had a whole chapter on finding a spouse. And I'm like 21 at the time. And I was like, I should make this. And so I made this list of all the qualities that this person would have, what it would look like, what they would look like they they do, what do they, it's like, be, do, have, whatever, that whole thing. And then what are your non-negotiables? Meaning if they don't have one of these things or have one of these things, you would say it's a no-go. And so I had about three, <laughs> three pieces of paper that had writing on it describing this person. And I read it and think like, what do they look like? How do they act? Like I would just kind of envision. And I remember I tell my manager at the time when I was at 24-Hour Fitness, that was when I started. And he said, he was like, amazing. He's like, it's a numbers game. And I was like, what? He's like, just like you learned how to sell here and you understand like it's a certain amount of prospects con- to a certain amount of that convert into clients and a certain, and he's like, it's the same thing with dating. He said, like, you've got to apply the same thing. And I was like, I get that. I had just learned that and gotten really good at it. So I was like, amazing. I can do that here. And he's like, and guess what? Like you'll get so much better at your work if you can go on dates with strangers. And so it was funny because I think <laughs> he saw the benefit in that. And I was like, that is amazing. I see that <laughs> correlation. Absolutely. And so I dedicated myself to like, okay, well, how did I reach out to leads when I was a personal trainer and I'm trying to get clients? Every day at lunch, all I did was call all the leads instead of eat lunch. So instead I got on Bumble and I just swiped for dates on Bumble. 
And the cool thing about Bumble is that obviously at the time, I don't know what it is now, but only a girl can message a guy. So then that automatically creates a filtering system because I don't have a bunch of like penis pics coming at me, (laughs) (laughs) like Tinder. And so what I did is I did that and I said, I will dedicate myself to going on one date a week until I find like a boyfriend. I wasn't looking for like a husband at the time. I actually didn't see myself getting married until I was like the age I am now. So you never know. But I committed myself to one date a week. And then that's what I did. I literally just was like, just see what's out there. See if that changes the list you have. See if you feel differently about people after. And at the worst case scenario is you become way better at talking to strangers, which will also make you more money because you're in sales. <laughs> and so I went on one date a week and I did that for, I want to say it was like between 16 and 18 months. Oh, wow. Until I met Alex. Every week. Oh, yeah. Now, there were some people I went on multiple dates with. So there's that. But it was really bad. I mean, it was like a lot of dates. And it was, there were some so, such bad dates and such just like awful. Like I had a guy one time, like, tell me he had like a VIP pass to a movie theater. He actually was sneaking in because he didn't money. And then we got like kicked out. You know, I had one guy take me on a, he wanted to go on a walk for a date, which ended up being a hike which ended up being four hours long. And then we were like stuck and lost in the desert. Like I've had so many instances, but I just looked at it and I was like, it's a numbers game. And if I don't give up, I can find somebody who's the right match for me. And I remember thinking, I think it's more about, because I never want to try and change somebody I'm with, right? Like I want them to be somebody who wants to change for the better. I don't want to have to be the reason that somebody wants to change. You know, it's like, oh no, I got her. So I got to work on it. It's like, they will never I, sustain for the, if you want no. to be with them for the rest of your life. Exactly. So I'm like, I want to find somebody who has that themselves, like you call it self-propelled is what I say. And I think that just means I might have to look more. That was what I thought. I was like, these are a lot of things that I'm looking for because I had worked so much on myself that I felt like, hey, I want somebody who can kind of like be on the same page. And so it wasn't until I met Alex and then I, I met him and we went on our first date. I remember I went home that night and the, the only thought that I was left with after going on a date with him was, I just want to keep talking to him. Like, I'm so interested in him. And even if we don't keep dating, I hope we can be friends. Like, that was what I was really thinking because I was just like, I just really liked being around him. And I went home and I looked at that list and I was like, I literally think he fits it all. And that was when I was like, you should keep dating this guy. And it was the same thing that we talked about earlier, which is I made a decision ahead of time what I was looking for. So if I got on a date, you know, I went on dates with, you know, guys with, you know, it's Newport Beach, they had tons of money, flashy, this and that, but they just wanted some chick that could look cute. You know what I mean? And that didn't fit what I wanted. I think that oftentimes, you know, it's like, what's the question? Are you the person that the person you're looking for is looking for? Mm-hmm. And I think that that's one thing that we can't be blind to is, does the person we want want us back? And I think I was really cognizant. I was really self-aware enough of where I was at. It's like, I'm not going to find somebody who's like got it all figured out because I don't either. But I'm like a really fast work in progress right now. And so I want somebody else who is. Yeah, a thousand percent. I love that. So when you meet Alex, he's a very, I want to say strong man. Yeah. And I don't necessarily just mean physically, but like his presence. Yeah. I would label him as an alpha male. Yeah. But I also think of you as an alpha female. When you entered the relationship, were you at all concerned about losing your confidence or your independence or just really like how you really freaking show? Because you show up with like energy and dominance, which I freaking love, girl. But many women, if they're with someone strong, 
over time, it can actually diminish them. I made it a goal not to be diminished because I think many people around him do get that way. And I looked at it as an opportunity to become more confident, stronger, and a better version of myself because I didn't blame him anytime we were in a room and people didn't hear me. And I think that a lot of women do that. And I am not saying that I'm right at all. But what worked for me and what I'm actually really fucking glad that I did is that I didn't say, I wish he was quieter. I wish Alex wouldn't talk so much. I wish he wasn't going to be so powerful. I said, what can I learn from him? I am so grateful that I'm married to somebody that I can learn so much from. And I've learned so much from him about that. Like he has made me so much more confident and powerful because I get to learn from him. He is very confident. And in so many ways, when I met him, I admired that so much about him. I was like, he's way more confident than me, for sure. <laughs> but I was like, there's no better way to become more confident than to marry somebody who is. And I really have taken so much from him in that way. Did you know how many people do the opposite, though? I know. So it's literally just the conscious goal. So in those moments where maybe you're in a room and he's very loud and people aren't listening to you, maybe they're ignoring you, whether it's business or not, right? Other people have had the same example, whether it's with family, yeah. where you're in a, or you're just in a room with friends and your partner may be very confident and they take over and then that you become small. So are you just repeating in your mind in those moments? Like, oh, if this isn't about him, it's not. I have two different thoughts. One is I will always think how I'm really proud of him and happy for him if he's getting more attention, more recognition, more credit for something, because he does work his fucking ass off. And he is a great person and deserves all of those things. I have that line of thinking. So that's happening. It's like proud, happy for you wife, right? The other line of thinking I have is if people aren't listening to you and they need to hear it from him, what do you need to change about how you deliver this message? And that is the only way that I think we've been able to do what we do together is that I look at it like, how can I get better so that they don't need to hear it from Alex? They can hear it from me. And I have found so much growth in thinking that way. And I think every time we blame our partner, you're stealing an opportunity from yourself to learn and grow. And I think that took me a few years to figure out. But when I did, it just unlocked everything for me. And I feel like I, my growth just compounded because I realized that like the best of me and the best of him, we can give to each other. I love that. And the idea of wanting good things for your partner and as well as wanting good things for you, I think is yeah. very important juxtaposition to balance because to your point is like, you, if you do want good things for them, then yeah. don't try and bring them down, but then look at yourself. And this is what one of the many reasons I love you go, like it's the full ownership part. Everything that we've been talking about today, you very much take full ownership. Not one point in this discussion ever have you pointed the finger at anybody else or anything else. How powerful is that full ownership to you? I just literally, I'd never want to be a victim. Even if I am, what good does that do me to say that I am? I give away my power. So I just look at it like, even if when there are situations where I am clearly a victim in some way, Acting like one does nothing for me. Do you have an example? When I was a kid. I think that was like the hallmark example of my life was that I lived with a mother who was an alcoholic and a drug addict. And 
in that house. You know, she would leave for weeks at a time. She was always drunk. And I have terrible memories for seven years of my life. And I think in so many ways, I could have become a victim of that situation. I was a kid. I was young. I didn't have resources. But I didn't. Because I remember there was just one day, it was like she hadn't come home for maybe three days. And I was sitting in this room and I was calling her because I was worried that she was dead, honestly. And How old are you at this point? Nine, nine or 10. And she wasn't answering. And it was like 3 a.m. And I hung up the phone. I called her, God, 20, 30 times. And I sat there and I don't even know where this thought came from, but I was sitting in that room and I thought to myself, you just keep calling her and like, you've done this before. Like nothing's going to happen. Like she's not coming home. She doesn't care, right? She's not cognizant enough to care. And then I literally just had the thought. I was like, you must make the rest of your life so much better than this. And you do not need to be a victim of this situation. And I remember thinking, you can find a strength in this situation. Do not let this turn you into someone weaker. I just remember thinking all these thoughts. I was like, I just remember, it was like, I have to make this worth it. You know what I mean? And I think that that was applied to my life. It's like, you have to make life worth it. And being a victim does you no justice. Like, it doesn't help you. Saying I'm a victim of, you know, a terrible childhood. Saying I'm a victim of a relationship. Saying I'm a victim of being overweight. It has never helped me. And you know what I did? Is that I moved out of her house. And I said, I'm I'm not going to keep helping her. You know, even though I feel like there's all these things and reasons I should stay here. It's like, I'm going to do the thing that feels terrible and get out of this house as a kid, you know, and leave her on her own or whatever that means. And I think that that has transferred to so many areas of my life because that was the hardest thing that I ever did is moving out of that house because I thought she was going to die. And I loved my mom. And I look at that with every area of my life. And I'm, I see so many kids who go through such terrible things when they're kids. But the way that they react to those situations determines the rest of their life. And I think that that just applies to everything. You know, are you a victim of your marriage? Are you a victim of food? Are you a victim of something really terrible that happened to you? You know, I could extrapolate out the things that I went through in that house and it could sound awful. And people would think, how are you here today? Right. But I don't because even I don't even like to talk like a victim. I don't even want to relive those things because at the end of the day, I'm grateful for it. I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful for all the moments in which I'm in a room with Alex and people don't listen to me. I'm grateful for the times when I was overweight and people told me I'm fat because they've all led to where I am now. And I think that we wish for strength, but we don't wish for the conditions in which strength builds. <laughs>